All right, welcome to The Unexpected Gardener. This is Sabrina. I am The Unexpected Gardener because doing these kinds of things in the dirt, outside, sweating, bugs is completely unexpected. I'm a city girl turned homesteader on 0.18 acres in a suburban neighborhood. And so we talk a lot about how to become more self-sufficient right where you are. And I am very excited to have this guest on the podcast today. John Clark is an attorney turned farmer. He's the author of Small Farm Republic. And I heard um, John on the Allie Beth Stuckey podcast. I was on my way to get my, pick up my raw milk. And my husband had sent this over. He's like, you got to listen to this. And as soon as I got home, I emailed him immediately, totally not thinking he would reply. And I just, I asked him to be on the podcast and he, he said yes. And so he is educating, advocating for small local farms. If you've been following me for any you know, amount of time, you know how much I talk about this kind of stuff. So welcome, John. I'm wicked excited to learn from you and talk today about this very important subject. Well, thanks for having me. I'm wicked excited to join you. I threw that in there because I am also a New Englander. I didn't know if I said that to you or not, but well, I don't know if you want to admit it, uh, but at least, <laughs> these labels is just funny because then you probably know that Vermonters say wicked a lot. Yes, of course. Well, I, I mean, I grew cold. up. Yep. Wicked cold. And I grew up, you know, in, in south of Boston. So um, I, I lost my accent on purpose. But um, but yes, I'm proud. I'm a proud New Englander. We're we're a very uh, interesting bunch. That's for sure. Um, so please explain like how you became a farmer, because that's kind of a big transition and why you think small farms are just so critically important, like right now. Well, uh, as I explained in the book, and I think, you know, but I'll, so I'll try to shorten the version. I, I didn't plan to become a farmer at all. I grew up around farms, dairy farmers in particular here in Vermont. Um, my mother's from right, right where I'm calling you from. Um, but we were all pretty much told to don't do farming, go get a job where you can make a living. And so I went on to law school. I actually lived in the UK for several years and I uh, lived in the big cities and I kind of hated it. But what happened for me was I got really sick with Lyme disease. And so I said, well, I've spent my life trying to make money. And now, and I didn't know it was Lyme disease. I couldn't walk. I was just crippled. And oh so I closed the law practice and we bought an old dairy farm up in the Northeast Kingdom. This was in 1999. And as my book explains, so I'm not trying to pitch the book, but it's a little bit of a longer story. I, I, I cannot credit myself with having some amazing insight about farming. It was a gradual awakening as I started to grow my own food as an effort to find an alternative um, livelihood that I learned more and more about how healthy it was, about how toxic the alternatives were, how many regulations and government policies were set up to, to crush the small farm and benefit the large farm. And having um, a, a long family history of Vermont dairy farmers who were pushed out by these policies, the more I learned about it, the more I became sort of activated as a, a food rights and farming activist. And then as my book recounts in 2016, I think it was, the state of Vermont showed up at my farm in Irisburg, Vermont, and told me I could not sell halves of beef, which was a new effort to basically shut down on-farm slaughter, which is a Vermont tradition and is um, a very important resource for those of us who sell meat directly to our consumers. And so that's when I really got kind of uh, involved and my health had recovered a bit, well enough for me to... Uh, take the flag and lead the charge for the farmers as their lawyer, I guess. We got a bunch of farmers down um, at the state house here in Vermont, and we actually got that, that uh, law repealed so that we are continuing our on-farm practices here in Vermont. And that's a very rare win because I've been monitoring a lot of these other food rights battles for years now, like Amos Miller and others. And by the way, I want to I throw something in here uh, for your listeners and for you. I think there's a particularly unique place that you are positioned in. Uh, there's there is a spectrum and as a suburban gardener slash farmer i think it's really important that you and and that i with you start to educate people about how much power and control they do have even yes. though they might be in a suburban area 
that it's not limited to e an either or either you, uh, you know, leap off the, the grid and, and join the farming world or or you're going to have to eat processed food and be stuck in the city. People in the cities are waking up. They're growing more of their own food. They're buying more of us country bumpkins food. And that's where our al alliances are imperative for us to fight back against the mega corporations that want to um, dominate our food and toxify our children. Thank you for allowing that rant, Sabrina. Yes, well, and that's actually a good segue into one of the things I want to talk about anyway, because, you know, as someone who, you know, didn't, I did not grow up understanding anything about like real food. We just ate packaged food and, you know, TV dinners or, you know, hamburger helper or whatever. I had no idea really about that. So I don't come from this line of, you know, farmers. I actually wrote a blog post last year was like, pretend that you come from a long line of farmers because I didn't, I had no idea about any of this stuff and I didn't figure it out really until 2020 and which a lot of people were kind of faced with this really, you know, scary time where you're like, Hey, I have literally no control over my, my food at all, you know? And so what you're saying is really true because I'm just a regular person and with no, you know, no history or generational farming experience. And when I figured out what you were just speaking of, of how broken things are and how important it is to locally source, um, I started a, like a, a food, I call it the food collaborative in my town. And, you know, that has grown, it's been about 18 months and it's grown unbelievably huge. We started with one farm and with grass fed, grass finished beef and, and me and a couple of people in my neighborhood. And it has grown to over 400 people on my email list. I have eight farms now. We've got chicken and pasture raised pork and eggs and um, raw milk and raw honey. And it, and it has been, it has exploded. And so one of the things I really realized, and of course God knew, I didn't really know that this was going to happen, obviously, but it, I, I have been able just without really much planning and without any huge skill set, you know, give a lot of power back to people who live in communities to get out of the big food system. And that everyone can do that. So that was one of my questions to you is like, where do, where do you, where can people start where they can start to chip away at kind of this, you know, this broken food system and start to, provide for the, you know, food for their families, like good local food. Well, and I think that's really important about what, what we're trying to do here. The first step is for people to become informed. And that's an ongoing step, kind of like COVID shots or inflation. It requires um, study to get up to speed on something. And the, 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 the Monsantos and the Dow Chemical Companies are well ahead of us on um, getting control of our food system. So the first thing is for people to be simply to become educated and it's an ongoing process. And the more people learn about their food and unlearn some of the falsehoods they believe about food, the more they became, they become liberated to be actualized in their own volition. In other words, making more food choices and then maybe growing food or as you're doing, you don't have to be the person who grows the food. I cannot emphasize how much I was encouraged and smiling while you were telling me your story because we all have different roles to play and that's where we need to find our allies. And so I'm not going to start a CSA, but I get really excited when someone like you does because you're proving a business model where you are actually acting as a liaison between farmers and customers. And I'm sure both are happy to, uh, that you would profit in some degree by making the, the, the customers healthier and helping the ecosystem and helping a local business all at one time. So you're proof of everything I argue in my book. Now, my job is to support the consumers in their food choices to combat or fight against zoning laws that would tell people how many chickens or cows they could have um, in, in opposition of nature, you know, because humans were close to their food throughout history. This idea of importing our food from China and Brazil is going to end badly. And that's why it's important. You mentioned you're originally from the Boston area. I'm in Vermont. It does not matter. We each bring a different flavor to the equation, just like food is grown in different climates. Um, one thing that's unique about Vermont is that we still have an existing 
uh, agriculture of sorts because we've been left behind by the country and economically. So at least we have some land and some animals and some farm knowledge that we can reclaim. And that's where you and I work together as allies to connect the dots. As people learn more they need, they learn how much they don't know. And then they learn that they're going to learn from farmers a lot more than they're going to learn from the so-called experts or Klaus Schwab or John Kerry or the people that are talking about farming. AOC is going to talk, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to tell us about how horrible cows are. I wonder if she's ever even driven past one. So we should get our authority and our knowledge from those people who do not have ideological uh, biases and who actually understand food. And as you do that, you will um, leverage yourself and others up and we are all stronger in the bargain. And by the way, something I emphasize repeatedly in my book and will hear, there is no downside. This is a win-win-win. This brings people together across blue and red, black and white, rich and poor. Um, there are more and more people coming to the fore. And especially that was the gift of COVID, as you saw with the, with the grocery stores uh, emptying their shelves, suddenly you became aware of a vulnerability that you didn't even know was there. And yeah. so that's the other direction I would point people and your listeners and you get educated uh, from the people who are our existing allies and have been doing this for 60 years. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Wendell Berry is a wonderful writer. His essays have warned us for decades. They're as relevant now, if not more so than ever. Joel Salatin has written a lot of important books about farming um, and farm policy, but he's also written a lot of how-to books, how to farm at different levels and different sizes and different climates. And Wendell Berry doesn't do that. Although Leopold, although Leopold is a writer who's been dead a long time, but it's very affirming for us to read that in the 1920s, a very, very intelligent uh, ecologist was telling us exactly what we're learning now about regenerative farming and, and caretaking the earth. He was telling us in 1920, that we were going to create a dust bowl, which we then did. And now we're on the way to, to creating perhaps the biggest dust bowl in the history of humanity. And anybody with their eyes opened is looking for a way to avoid that calamity. And as I say, it's a win-win. You know, preparing or growing your own food is healthy. It's, it's healthy on many levels and there's no downside. I mean, you might save a little money buying industrial food from the store, but you're probably going to spend more money later on the cancer or, or diabetes medications that that is going to uh, occasion. So in the end, um, probably the number one thing we can do as Americans, both for our liberties and our physical health, is to be more mindful of what we're putting in our bodies and where it's coming from. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, you... You, it's almost like we planned this, John, because you're, you're talking about certain things and, and then it kind of is a perfect segue into something that I wanted to talk about. And you mentioned AOC and the whole cow thing. And it, that is one of my biggest pet peeves, because the more I learn about, you know, farming and animals and just the way big food processes animals and you hear, you know, the powerful, this is, is one of my biggest pet peeves. You hear the powerful talk about climate change a lot and all of these things that they, that we need to do to sacrifice, like I can't have my gas stove anymore, dumb stuff like that. And then cows are somehow a problem, but yet, yet they'll ship garlic from China, which is like, what, why would we do that? And how much, how much is that affecting the environment when you're, you're literally shipping garlic from China when we can grow that here in the United States, they use plastics like it's going out of style in their packaging. And then they're putting toxic chemicals on everything. They're putting it in the food, if you can call it food, the processed food, and they're putting it on our crops. I mean, we could have a whole podcast episode on that because it's so, it's, it's literally drives me crazy that, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't have a plastic straw or a gas stove, but yet, no one's questioning why we're shipping beef from, you know, wherever, New Zealand, China, Brazil. And then, then when I learned that cows are actually good for the environment in a regenerative farming situation, and I really would love you to speak to that to kind of educate us on why that is. Why, why is it that cows are actually good when you're, you have regenerative farming, you're not just monocrop farming? Monocrop, by the way, it took me a while to figure out what people were talking about when they said that. Um, it means you just, you know, you farm one thing. You know, you're just doing corn and that's it or soybeans and that's it. 
um, which of course they don't use regenerative farming. They just use chemicals in order to get that to grow. Well, and you could monocrop without chemicals. So the two are, are related because most monocropping is of GMOs. And so they actually won't grow without uh, the Roundup and the other chemicals, especially if they have Terminator technology, which I'm not sure that that's widely used. But, uh, you know, I'm talking about Roundup ready crops, particularly soybeans and corn. Uh, corn also has a lot of other chemicals like atrazine um, and neonicotinoids that are attendant on its use. So they're killing the bees, they're killing the soil. Uh, they're destroying the endocrine system of our children, perhaps, for highly subsidized corn, 92 million acres this year. But let me get back to your cows, because you actually, when you when you raised your question or statement about cows, there was an intersection of several things going on there, whether you realize it or not, Sabrina. Um, so let me try to break it down. And first of all, one of the things you mentioned is um, cows as a source of pollution versus food imported from elsewhere. Well, let's expand it. How about, and, and that's why we end up getting into the climate issue uh, related to agriculture and it's unavoidable and yet maybe it's important. And as, as you may know how I outline, we're making it all about carbon dioxide and it's as if that has sucked all the oxygen out of the room and we can't talk about atrazine or neonicotinoids or glyphosate anymore. These are the things that are killing people. This is the other wake up call, I think, for many Americans, left and right. My book is trying to uh, alert conservatives to the toxins they're putting in their bodies when they drive through fast food restaurants every day. It may taste well, uh, it may taste good, but it is slowly killing you, fattening you, sickening you, weakening your immune system. Now cows become to me the tip of the spear. For one thing, as you may know, I really like my cows, but what they've <laughs> done is they've taken cows and for decades, so again, you know, I am a person who's multi-generational farming family and it was about poverty for as long as uh, the extended memory even of my grandmother's goes, um, they grew up in poverty. And, uh, but it depends, I guess, on how we measure things, you know, certainly material poverty, what it built in their character is priceless. But this was an industry that was being destroyed by large corporate America and overregulation by the government who helped it starting almost 100 years ago. So many of us have seen regulations used here in Vermont to destroy the family farm, to go after the cow. So now we're told that cows are the problem because cows are destroying the planet. There are so many layers of lies in that. And I want your listeners to become equipped so that when they're done listening to this, they don't need me around or consult a book to sit at a dinner table and tell people why cows are actually the solution to our problems. Mm -hmm. So what they've done is they've taken confinement fed cows, confinement feed operations, CAFOs, large operations where they consolidate maybe even 10,000 cows into one facility to milk them mechanically. That's a very different form of rearing cows uh, than the traditional agrarian methods. So they use the industrialization of cows to then paint them as destructive. So here in a, in, in a quick link is what happens. When you get rid of cows because of their methane, you also get rid of the solids, which are called manure. The two do not exist apart from one another. That manure has been central in agriculture for as long as humans have been digging into the ground. In fact, ancient cultures used human manure, but we don't have to do that. We have 94 million cows in this country. And meanwhile, as you say, we've got environmentalists saying, look, if we were to put bison back on the land, we could save the planet. Well, we only have about 350,000 bison I think 600,000 in total, maybe 300,000 wild. But why would bison be okay and, and cows not? As right. Joel Salatin documents and many other books are out there, and I document many of the resources in my book, if you take cows and you get them out of the CAFOs, and you put them, put them back on the ground that you're tilling, releasing carbon into the air, if you put them back on the ground where you're destroying the soil with corn and allow the cow manure to rebuild the microbiome, which is the soil, then you will not have so much soil erosion you will not have so much water loss. Cows will build the soil, improve uh, uh, plant um, growth, sequester carbon, and actually sequester methane because there are bacteria that grow with the assistance of cow manure that sequester probably more methane than the cows produce. And the whole methane thing is a red herring anyway. Now let's just look though, if we follow AOC and Bill Gates and John Kerry down their road, we get rid of all the cows and we put people on synthetic meat, which is its own travesty environmentally. But what they're going to do with the cows is how will you replace that manure? The only replacement for cow uh, nitrogen, uh, manure nitrogen would be urea. 
urea is manufactured from natural gas, which is spiking in costs and driving up our food prices, but it's also, also known as methane. And natural gas, when you use it to produce synthetic fertilizers like urea, you release, uh, uh, you release nitrous oxide. And the EPA estimates that nitrous oxide is 274 times more, um, more of a greenhouse gas, more warming than carbon dioxide. So why are they lying about cows? Because clearly none of this holds up. And all of the science and everything I'm talking about is just basic agriculture. It, you don't have to be a purist organic farmer or anything. This is just why don't we, if we put 20 or 30 percent of our cows, existing cows, back on the grass, we would sequester more carbon dioxide in a few years than we've generated in the entire industrial revolution, which we've done largely through tilling up the ground. This is what led to the last dust bowl and is leading to the next one. 92 million acres of corn we put in this year. They're estimating it's going to steadily increase, partly because they subsidize it for ethanol, which is about 40% of the crop, is un inefficiently going into our engines. If you started counting all of those non-greenhouse gas uh, costs of that, the atrazine, the, the ill health, the soil degradation, then you'd find that ethanol is a complete scam boondoggle that some people make an awful lot of money out of destroying the soil, destroying the planet, increasing corn costs, uh, while they subsidize high fructose corn syrup, and then they want to give you drugs to help you uh, curb your appetite, and they want to put a sugar tax on to punish you for buying what they subsidize. This is like the mafia. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't make money. any sense. It doesn't so make why, any sense. So why would they go after cows, though, Sabrina, other than they can't, uh, they can't patent cows. They've patented corn. They're driving out organic corn farmers because if your if your GMO corn pollutes my organic corn, I get sued for stealing your technology. They can't do that with my cows. So if we looked at distributism in the history of this country and Thomas Jefferson and many great writers, we would see that small and local is always the solution to grand problems, not more grand pumbas. Right? We don't need a Green New Deal and a global power structure of globalists to somehow make us not pollute anymore. It won't work that way. And by the way, they don't care about that. You don't hear them talking about flat screen TVs. You don't hear them going after people's use of cell phones and throwing them out and all the environmental costs of that. You don't hear them going after Americans' lawnmowers when we burn 800 million gallons a year in gas in our lawnmowers. And maybe that's a segue for us to discuss what's coming in the future because food is also impacted by monetary policy. And so what would we do with our world if gasoline was $100 a gallon? And I ask people this question, and of course they can't imagine that gasoline would be $100 a gallon. And then I tell them, as a person whose background is finance and tax, it is only a matter of time before gasoline is $100 a gallon. Now, if gasoline was $100 a gallon, do you think people would mow their lawn less frequently, maybe not twice a week for the enjoyment they get? Maybe they'd get a more efficient lawnmower. Maybe they get a push mower. Maybe they get a push mower that doesn't take gas at all. But we sell 5 million new lawnmowers a year in this country, plus leaf blowers, which get even worse mileage. These things get worse gas mileage than a car. They have no pollution control devices on them. And we're mowing an area of lawns now that's that's absolutely huge. And we're not, and NASA says that that's helping the environment because it's reflective, because NASA doesn't count the fossil fuels used or the pollution generated in the lawn mowing while they assess it, which by the way is exactly what they do with solar panels and, and uh, EV cars. They say, look, this is gonna save fuel. This is gonna save carbon, but they exclude all of the costs of production, manufacturing, mining, lithium batteries. People are starting to wake up to this, but this is right out of Wendell Berry. You could read this in 1975. My battle with the state of Vermont over on-farm slaughter, you can read Wendell Berry's essay from 1978 called Sanitation in the Small Farm, in which in three short pages, he explains how efforts to sanitize us and supposedly improve health and safety end up shutting down farms and growing large corporate entities that then dominate the food supply and then taint the food supply because there's a lot of money in processing too. And the cheaper you can make food and the further you can ship it by, by harvesting it earlier, um, the more the profit motive is going to determine what you're putting in your children's bellies. And so if you think food companies are any more trustworthy than RJ Reynolds or tobacco companies, then you need to wake up and start looking at the history and the facts and look at pink slime and look at the things that they feed us. If they can turn a waste product into something that you will eat, they will do so. 
And to paraphrase Wendell Berry, as I close my rant, he wrote decades ago, if corporate America could design a system to feed you through a tube directly from the factory to your navel, navel they would have done so. And we're getting awful close. And when you start talking about synthetic meat yeah. and there only being 150 cows in the world, well, then we have to look at, well, how do you make synthetic meat? Well, you make it out of soy and corn yeah. and other plants, which are destroying the soil, destroying the water, full of chemicals, destroying the planet, destroying the bees, destroying the birds, destroying the amphibians, destroying us. And that's supposed to be the solution because cows are such a bad alternative. I'll tell you what, they're after cows because they want to control every morsel we put into our bodies. They want to control it for profit and they want to control it for power. It's as old as humanity. Control the food, control the people. That's what people need to wake up to. And then take more control of their own food like you're doing wherever you are. If you throw your hands in the air and go, oh, I can't do anything, then you are consigning yourself to an early death. You are climbing into your coffin. So you and I are encouraging people to get out of that coffin and start growing food. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it is, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, to hear all that. And even though I already know it, it still feels overwhelming. And I know, you know, I think the reason why I have resonated with so many people is that, you know, I am just, I have a really tiny yard. It's not like, you know, you, you, you know, I know you probably have acres and you have cows and you're a farmer and, you know, you just think like, well, I can't do that. And, and I can't, you know, I can't do that. And I did go through a time where I just kept praying that God would give me more land. Could you just, I would really, you know, if I just had more, if I just had a bigger property, then I could do this. If I just had this, then I could do this. And I really felt like God was like, you are where you're, you are. And that's where I want you. So, and I said, well, I guess I better be content where I am. And it turns out that, you know, that that's the that's a good thing because people can uh, you know they can relate i you know my hoa tells me i can't have chickens for example you know i have these stupid rules that i'm supposed to follow and more people can relate to that so that you don't feel like helpless like you said you kind of look at it and you just go well there's nothing i can do well there is there's definitely things you can do and i I physically cannot grow all the produce that I might eat. You know, I'm, I'm learning how to can it so that I, you know, like we just ate salsa yesterday that I canned up in July, you know, but, you know, we're learning how to do that, but I don't have the, uh, the land in order to, to, you know, some people I follow on Instagram, they, they can up enough tomatoes for a year. Like I really can't do that. However, I can make very conscious choices on who I buy from. So whatever I can't grow, you know, I can't have chickens to get eggs. So instead I will buy them from local farmers. So, you know, I think the thing for me and I, and sometimes I get really too passionate about it and I get really frustrated about it is we have to stop buying the garbage that they're selling us. And, you know, you mentioned big tobacco. And one thing that really keeps coming into my mind just the last few months is marketing, you know, Market big food is creating poison. Our children are sicker. You know, I did I did a podcast episode about I, I shop at Azure Standard, which is kind of outside our traditional food. I don't know if you know about that, John, but you know, it's it's kind of outside the, the big food and it's a way for me to be able to feed my family without, you know, going to the grocery store. And so I did an episode about that, but I started with some t statistics, you know, kids are eating 92.7%, 92.7% of kids are eating junk food or processed food every day. So right there, right out of the gate, you can make a huge impact because if we don't buy it, then they're going to stop making it. But yet we're still buying this garbage food that they put out and which has lab created you know, natural flavors are not natural. You know, they create them in a lab. They make you, you know, they're delicious and you want to eat more. And, you know, it's it's a real problem and it feels overwhelming. But small people like us can unite in making these kind of small steps. The other thing I wanted to talk about, which is another thing that drives me bananas, is, you know, the people who are in charge of the United States, they work really really hard to point out how we're all divided you know they they put us into little categories by our race and skin color um, by our gender you know politics you know democrats and republicans um 
but to me, like, you know, and then all these issues are huge problems, you know, that, that we need to focus on. But to me, the broken food, food supply is the most important issue. And we need to be united with that because I heard you say on Ellie Beth Stuckey's podcast, you know, you, it doesn't matter what color you are. If you don't have food, you know, I mean, this is a huge problem. And I feel like it's sort of, I feel like there's a tipping, like this year, I just feel like I'm a little excited about it because I feel like we're kind of heading into a, a time. It's an election year, so buckle up, people. But it's going to be a, a time where we're really going to start to see some movement. I've seen it just in my own community that this is the most important issue and it can unite us all colors, all political persuasions. We can become united to demand clean food and to, to end mass break out of this food, big food system and, and buy from local farmers. Do you see that when, you know, do you, how do you feel about what I just said about kind of the, the way that the powerful want to divide us. Well, what you just did was you outranted me. You started you. with land size and you moved into <laughs> tomato canning. And I, I mean, I, my brain is spinning. So let me try to end where or begin where you ended. Um, the more I've become educated about this, and, and I set out to write a book, by the way, simply advocating for the benefits of small local ag farming, particularly regenerative, um, which, you know, is an interesting term. Um, you don't necessarily have to be a purist and be organic. So when we talk about regenerative, there are some regenerative methods that can be applied at large scale or an industrial scale and are still helpful, like low till or no till, app, uh, um, you know, methods. But those are not really very beneficial if you're then spraying chemicals. So, so the point is that the more I get into the subject, the more it was unavoidable. But I looked at the, uh, the globalists who are trying to control us. I think that we get into one of those divisions is between conventional versus organic agriculture. Yes. All of these are designed to, to create inaction. And so what you're talking about is people waking up, first of all, to their plight, and then second of all, waking up to a path of escape. And that path of escape is for us to fight back against the corporate hegemony, which has destroyed our food, is filling it with many more toxins. In fact, a warning to your listeners, I've had people read my book and tell me they had an existential crisis because they didn't realize how bad it was. When you look at the aquifers that we're pumping water out of the ground at a much faster rate than we're replenishing it to grow um, to grow alfalfa in Arizona, our third driest state, to then ship to China, there's something really wrong with the management and stewardship of our natural resources going on there. And that has nothing to do with left or right or blue or red, though many would say, uh, and I would have to agree that the bulk of conservatives and liberals um, in our Congress have been um, allied with large corporate agricultural entities for a very long time. And it's time to decide for them whose side they're on and who we're going to elect. I'm not a Mitch McConnell fan, but I am a Thomas Massey fan. Thomas Massey in Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell's also from, is a totally different kettle of fish. So I don't care. If you're, uh, is it a tester? I think, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. If you advance um, local farm and food policies, I learned, I hope it's true, but I learned that Peter Welch here from Vermont, who's a Democrat, recently agreed to sign on to the Prime Act. The Prime Act is, is a substantial piece of legislation to allow local farmers more latitude to grow and sell their products locally. This is a battle against globalists who want to control us. Um, whether whether people think they want to do that to kill us or to just profit off of us, you have to be an idiot to not recognize that they want to profit off of you. You know what I mean? I don't, as a lawyer, I don't have to prove that there's a conspiracy um, that's evil intentioned if I can just prove visibly that there's a conspiracy to make money. Mm -hmm. You know, this is Henry Kissinger, and this is what they've been doing for a hundred years, and it's been under the radar, and most consumers don't care because they get cheap food. But in the last 20 years, we've brought in GMOs, we've brought in new technologies, we've brought in a whole new world of toxins to the food supply to enhance corporate profits at the expense of human health. So maybe it's gone far enough that people are going to wake up. And when they go after people's cows, there are very few voices in opposition. People smile, dismiss it, and then they keep coming after the cows. If they went after Americans' lawnmowers, they would have people with pitchforks or lawnmowers 
up in the you know <laughs> people are addicted to riding their little mower around and mowing. Yeah. I don't even know sometimes how they can tell where they've mowed and where uh, where where the new mowing is. And you can tell. I don't like lawns. That's why I use sheep to mow my lawns. Um, but I recognize other people have their lawns, and I recognize as a conservative that they should have the liberty to decide whether to mow their lawns. A little aside here, when government tries to compel people what to, to do things, people tend to be oppositional. When California was in drought and they passed laws to restrict people from watering their lawns, water usage immediately went up by 3% as people snuck out at two in the morning and started watering their lawns, right? Mm. It's the tragedy of the commons. If you want people to mow their lawns less and stop spilling 20 million gallons a year of gas on the ground of refined gas, more than the Exxon Valdez that we you know, all remember, well, those of us that are old enough, um, then you have to appeal to their self-interest. Now, $100 a gallon gas will do it. They'll, yeah, they'll be, you, know, um, that, you know, that's a good use of gas in a lawnmower. It'll go, I mean, in a, uh, in a chainsaw, you might get a return on it. But um, what I'm getting at there is the uh, fuel price and food inflation, which is an inevitable product now of sloppy monetary policy. You can't just look th through one lens at this problem when you ask, and I'm still talking about the globalists. Uh, it seems to be a deliberate sabotage of the U.S. currency underway to print this amount of money. I don't care, again, if it's right or left. This is math. This is out of Milton Friedman. And when you print large amounts of money, you unleash um, inflation. And there's always a temptation to do that, by the way, because you can unleash, oh, I don't know, $10 billion and give it all to your friends and your, your, your uh, social justice activism and maybe a couple million dollars for some artwork. And by the time that does its damage to the economy, it's untraceable to the cause. And so that's the, um, the, the moral hazard of monetary policy. Look at our food prices. And now we're being told that food isn't going to go up next year. Well, food is a particularly difficult uh, inflationary pressure to, uh, to estimate or predict. That's actually why core inflation is um, what's called headline inflation all inflation through a basket of goods, but you take away fuel and food to determine core inflation numbers. And the reason is that food and fuel are unpredictable. They are susceptible to geopolitical turmoil uh, and market crises around the world. So our food now, unlike a hundred years ago, is directly tied to cheap energy. And if that cheap energy becomes either, either unavailable or more expensive then everything that made the green revolution possible, this miracle of food production will unravel and reverse. And suddenly it will be more competitive for me to grow my food. And even for you to grow food, you can grow an amazing amount of food on half an acre as you've yeah. already learned. And when you buy through a CSA or other farmers, all you're really doing is compensating them for the acreage. It's sort of like a mini rental and given how high prices of land and taxes are going. It's, it's a gift if you can, uh, you know, pay your local farmer who might be 30 miles away from you. Um, but, but you're just, you, instead of, you might only have an acre, but you don't have to pay taxes on 20. Uh, give a little of your money to a person who's paying taxes on 20, you see. And the more we reinforce small scale, there are a lot of pressures right now going on, especially in corn. I'm researching this right now. They're actually going to lead to an even further consolidation of our farming industry, quote unquote, food does not lend itself to economies of scale. We're proving it right now in this conversation. And if people want to really get depressed, they can read my book, Small Farm Republic. And there's a whole chapter on human health. There's a whole chapter on the destruction of our water supplies. Um, there's a whole chapter on soil erosion. None of those are being addressed at all by EV cars and solar panels, unless it is to accelerate the chemicals in our ecosystem and to accelerate um, the deterioration of soil and water. So if we're, if we're gonna look at farming as the bad guy, um, there's an old adage that even a pig knows better than to shit where it sleeps. If you will forgive my language. I'm a farmer, I get to use that word. Are we a society that is going to continue to defecate in our own food supply, even worse? Because manure, if you were to crap where you eat, would not be as toxic for you as the endocrine disrupting chemicals and phthalates and PFAs and stuff they've been pouring into our bodies for 80 years without any regulation or restriction. People are waking up, Sabrina. You're just one of many. And we need to wake up as many people as we can. This is true wokeness, by the way. Yeah.
Well, and it just and, and it, it we come right back to this to where we started, where you know supporting your local farmer, no getting to know them, and you know understanding how they farm, how they treat their animals. You know that is really, really. It's more important now. I feel. I mean, it, I wish we were doing this all along, but now I just feel like it's more important than ever. And you know, last, um, I do want to speak one one thing that was an obstacle in my brain when I when I felt kind of that tug last spring. I felt a real tug, like you need to get a freezer and you need to start working start working towards locally sourcing all your meat. And so we did that. And but I I really had this you know, this obstacle in my brain that that meant I had to buy a half a cow or I had to buy a quarter cow and I had to have space for, and I didn't know, I couldn't figure out like how much is that and how much room does that take and how much money is that going to cost? And it felt really unattainable. And what I came to find out is that at least the farmers that are in my food collaborative, there's no minimum order. You know, you can order 10 pounds of ground beef if that's all you want. And and all of a sudden it opened up this whole new opportunity for me that I don't, I don't need to buy, you know, I can, if I want to, all of these farmers will be able to sell me, you know, a, a whole pig or, you know, whatever, but they, it, it's, it's so much more accessible to people than they realize. And it doesn't matter where you live. Cause even if you live in the city, you know, there's going to be farmers that w w will be within, you know, a certain proximity of where you live you just got to find them. And, you know, it just, you know, it can feel real, you know, this conversation got to be like a little bit of a bummer, you know, when you're just thinking about this huge problem, but, but we can, we can, we have a lot of power. Each individual person really does have, you know, the ability to make these small changes, reduce the amount of chemicals that you're allowing into your, your family. And, and then just, you know, saying, no, I'm not buying your garbage and I'm going to buy from, you know, this farmer. All of the farmers in my collaborative are within a 50 minute, you know, radius of where I live. And if you want to change environmental, you know, if you want to make environmentalists happy, well, wouldn't that do it? You know, I mean, my, my food yeah. chain is, you know, or is that what they call it? The food, kind of the food chain or the impact, like it's, it's really cut, you know, it's not like, you know, the farmer to the processor to the, you know, right. the farmer packager. to consumer. Yeah. Yes. And you're right. Of course, it, it's uh, environmentally beneficial. And lest I forget, because you one of your earlier remarks reminded me, one of the best resources to help those who are just dipping their toe in the water is Joel Salatin's book with uh, Dr. Sina McCullough. They wrote it together. It's called Beyond Labels. And it helps people understand you know, how are eggs processed and which ones should I buy? And and there's also, um, there's an annual list called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean yep. 15. If people don't know that for fruits and vegetables, that's a quick guide to give you an idea of those foods that you can buy um, that are conventional and are probably not going to hurt you, particularly things with skins like bananas or avocados versus foods that you might think and that look very healthy, but are actually some of the most toxic, like uh, conventional grown strawberries, blueberries and grapes, which can have 15 or more residues, 15 different chemical residues in one grape. Uh, you give that to a two or a four year old. I mean, they're more vulnerable. You give it to a girl versus a boy. She's more vulnerable. So we right. need to educate people because otherwise they get overwhelmed like you're describing and they say, oh, I don't know how to find uh, buy a half a cow. And we get intimidated by our own ignorance. And the solution yeah. is to dissipate the ignorance by learning from all the people around us who are willing to teach us. You can buy a couple of local chops. See how you like them. See if grass fed tastes better. Maybe get some recipes to go along. Maybe learn how to can, learn how to lacto-ferment, learn about why that's healthier for you, and pretty soon you're addicted. If you wanted to learn to scuba dive, you wouldn't start with a 200-foot, you know, uh, deep mixed gas plunge. You'd start with a with a, with a uh, you know a, a mask and a snorkel, right? So we're talking about how people get into their food supply, and pretty soon it can become an addiction in its own right because you find yourself intrigued by what you're learning, and you're countering the uh, devilishly evil forces that want to deceive you with labels like natural flavors, yes. want right. to deceive your taste buds by uh, 
creating in laboratories chemicals that will make you want to keep eating or make you eat something that's not food at all, but actually made from a petroleum product that they've made that you want to eat it. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you if you get educated, you can't go back to that stuff. If you find out what McDonald's does to create its big, long French fries with Burbank russet potatoes and the horrible monitor and other chemicals that are ex that they're exposed to, why would you eat that again? But what happens is, Sabrina, that people get intimidated, even in our conversation, just about every food source, even down to water, you can look at. And it's yes. been adulterated in some way. And so at some point you go, you know what? I give up. Give me a bag of Doritos. I'm not reading the labels anymore. I give up. I can't do anything about it. That powerlessness, that feeling of powerlessness, that's what corporate America wants us to feel. But you said it earlier. They will respond to our marketing choices. Years ago, I said, look at all this high fructose corn syrup stuff. Why do corporations keep selling us this? And then I realized through study that it's because we demand it. We're the ones that determine the products on the shelves by our, they try to deceive us. They spend billions of dollars advertising things that are unhealthy as good for you. I mean, there, there's a long list of those, right? They actually used to advertise cigarettes in the fifties with doctors and, and um, you know, famous basketball players telling you how much better smoking cools improve their game and their breathing. You know, the, the capacity for humans to lie for profit is as old as the earth itself. And so you have to have the capacity to stop trusting labels like Kraft. Stop trusting these companies. Don't trust Bayer. Bayer Aspirin is now the owner of Monsanto. Bayer, that company, polices GMO patents around the world against organic farmers. Get informed, support locally. Then pretty soon you get a freezer, you've read a book, you've talked to a farmer, and you buy a quarter of a cow. Or maybe you buy, maybe you don't. Maybe you split something with somebody else. And by the way, also, you have to look at your individual state laws as to what you're available, you know, allowed to do. Uh, when you buy individual cuts, like in most states here in Vermont, it has to be processed in a federal facility um, as opposed to buying direct to the farmer. Uh, so I, I'm not trying to discourage anybody, but just say, you know, this is something also to investigate. But it's fun. You know, one of the things that I really like doing that I've realized about farming I don't grow my own feed. You may, I've only got seven acres here and I've got almost 50 sheep and 11, 12 cows now, a little bit too much. Um, but we spill over and borrow some neighbor's fields. And I like supporting my area farmers. And I meet so many farmers and I go and I drive one place and I get some square bales and another place for the round and then they're out and I go somewhere else. I meet so many people in my community and, and form friendships and, and encouragement and alliances. And I'm helping their businesses. And if you and the people you work for start building those relationships, um, how do you put a price on them? Um, it's right. fun. It's joyful. It's wonderful to start learning about the animals that you were putting in your body wrapped in plastic. And you didn't even realize that there was blood involved and that they once roamed around and ate and that they have people that take care of them. I'm not enslaving animals. I'm serving them. We're in a symbiotic relationship that goes back tens of thousands of years. And now they paint farmers as bad because they're treating animals badly, the animal welfare crowd. And then they're joining up with the climate crowd to say animals are bad because they fart. Animals, you will die without them. And you mentioned it as far as bringing people together. Starvation does not care what color your skin does, your skin is, any more than uh, fentanyl or heroin cares what color your skin is. That's right. And, and I make that analogy because, you know, both are dealing with poisons, both are crossing race lines, both will unite people. Because when you start having the chaos that's coming with escalating food uh, prices or, in fact, food shortages, which everybody assumes could never happen again, that's one thing Vermonters remember, then very, very quickly, all of this race stuff is going to just fall by the wayside. In fact, if you look at the uh, uh, the, the sovereignty food movements here in Vermont, they have workshops about, you know, Native American people and food rights. There's no meat on the bones. There's nothing they have to offer from a social justice perspective when compared to what we're talking about, which is we should all agree to get rid of some of these chemicals. Why is America still using atrazine on its corn crops when it only increases our profit, our productivity by about two to three percent? And most of the world has banned it. You know, Americans eat 65 times more high fructose corn syrup than the British. Why is that? And is that maybe why we're so much fatter? Let's stop giving ourselves cancer, obesity, diabetes, 
high blood pressure, and a host of other problems that we are literally feeding our children. And that's why ultimately parents need to take the responsibility to find out where their food comes from, to grow food rather than go buy it, process, especially fast food. Don't go through a fast food, drive it. You can go research this. Phthalates, which are really nasty endocrine disruptors, are found in, for some reason, they don't fully understand. Uh, Zen Honeycutt recently did a study about this and tested food. It's, it's loaded with chemicals. And in fact, one trip to McDonald's can toxify you for weeks. So stop killing yourself by being a, a slave to corporations that are chuckling in their boardrooms while they make a lot of money giving you and your children cancer. That would be a good thing to bring people together. And we can discuss race issues in the process, um, but studies are showing that it really doesn't, it's not really a socioeconomic issue. Uh, there are some socioeconomic aspects and I don't think you wanna go there today, but forgive me for rambling on. What else could we chat about, friend? Yeah, I know, because we could do it. I'm hoping you'll come back because I feel like we just sort of, you know, the tip of the iceberg of so many different facets of why why we need to take back the control. Because, you know, you, you we just we talked about so many different things about, you know, the fast food thing drives me, you know, crazy, too, because I think like I'm sorry if this is going to break people's hearts, especially down here in the South. Um, Chick-fil-A is not the Lord's chicken. OK, and. You know, there's like 150 ingredients in a Chick-fil-A sandwich. It's not chick. It's not well, just chick you, you know the, my little story about Chick-fil-A in my book? No. no. I think I mentioned the book. Part of part of my book's origin was a visit to Joel Salatin at Polyface Farm in which we discussed our shared consternation that uh, conservatives and Republicans in particular were fattening themselves up at Chick-fil-A and that the majority of our customer base are from the left. And Joel Salatin, who's really about promoting food, can't get into the political melee at all because it'll hurt his food sales. And me, I don't raise enough food to care. I'm in the business of selling ideas. And so I took the bull by the horns and my book attacks and, and, and tries to recruit conservatives specifically to stop eating fast food. And, you know, so Chick-fil-A was the specific name for obvious reasons. And I don't want to bash anyone label. I've already bashed McDonald's. Um, but, you know, we have to look at people that go to drive-ins kind of like we do at other people who are addicted because food is literally being designed to be addicted. Yes. And now they're selling us Wegovy to uh, curtail the, you know, this is the fat, uh, the, the uh, obesity drugs to help curtail the um, appetites that they've created chemicals to stimulate. I mean, that's a win-win. If I can, if I can sell you alcohol or if I can sell you fentanyl and uh, it's antidote, right? If I could yeah. sell you Narcan right. too, I mean, I'll sell you both. You could buy them in a yeah. package deal. And that's, that's right. what the and government is doing. So at any rate, so, you know, we have only scratched the surface, um, but let's keep picking because corporate America has all the money, but we've got all the right ideas. Agreed. Agreed. And Joel Salatin is, he is at my absolute favorite. I've heard, I, I was at Polyface Farm for the um, Homesteaders of America Women's Conference. And he is, He's so smart. He's only, I, sometimes I feel like he's too smart for me. But when I read his books or I hear him speak, it's so it just encourages me to keep keep on, you know, and I don't you know, I don't fit the profile. You know, I, I've gone to the Homesteaders of America, you know, conferences. I went to one in Asheville. I went to the women's homesteaders. And it's like I don't fit in the profile or the, you know, what you would think of as a, a homesteader. I don't fit that, but um, I am, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm the modern definition of a homesteader and anybody can be a homesteader. You can, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, not, the, the definition of a homesteader is you, you know, you, you strive to live a, a life of self-sufficiency. So you can do that in an apartment, you know, you can still start, you can start to learn the skills. You can start to locally source the food. Um, there, and, and you can stop, you know, buying Chick-fil-A. I mean, my, my kids, my 17-year-old, he was at something with his friends, and they were like, blah, 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 McDonald's. He's like, I've never had McDonald's. They were like, what? And he's like, nope, never had He's never had it. I, I, would, you, I would have to be on my deathbed to – I just – I'm <laughs> not interested. I'm not interested, and I'm not putting it into my kids either. But that's hard to do. So, you know – you. It's a process and, you know, you can't do everything all at once. It's one of the things I talk about a lot, especially moms. You know, you work really hard to nourish your family and, you know, it's hard to be a mom. And sometimes you're like, oh, my gosh, I, 
I got to just go through the drive through It's just so much easier. And I get that. A hundred percent. I get that. But you can make small steps. And it's all about kind of the small, the small movements in the right direction. And then before you know it, like you said, it's an addiction because I am a hundred percent. The guard growing my own food has been such a rewarding experience. I never in a million years would have thought that I would want to do that. Um, you know, and it, it's, it is, it's more than just growing food. It's so much more it's. And so well, I really yeah. am, I'm so encouraged that, and I really do. I I'm hoping, you know, I'm so thankful you came on and I'm hoping that you'll come back so we can maybe zero in on some of these topics that we scratch the surface on. Um, you, you tell me where to zero in. By the way, Joel was just here in Vermont two weeks ago. He and I spoke together at a conference, uh, Vermont's first um, Liberty Food Fest, where he's coming back again next year. Uh, the homesteading movement, and again, it's kind of funny to hear you. It doesn't matter what your background, put the clothes on of homesteading, they will fit fine. You will get used to the clothing, yes. right? And uh, to me, that is the front line. This may sound ironic, but actually, hopefully, it gives hope to people. The the uh, radicalism of fighting against Klaus Schwab and the globalists at the WEF and the, whoever else is to just get together locally and grow some cabbages. That's they right. can't control that. They don't. It's always been our true liberty. That's why they've always been after farmers, because we have the capacity to be resilient when they control the food supply. We become enslaved. And um, there's a long history of this, particularly in uh, Russia and China. But also here in America, when we wiped out the bison to kill the Native Americans. This is to save the planet, by the way. We have too many humans. We need to control you. And if we can toxify your food and make you all sterile, then we'll have saved the world. And it's not quite genocide. Yeah. Um, but the most important thing you can do is inculcate good eating habits in your own children. It's a lot harder to unlearn addictions in adulthood. And it's intergenerational. And you will be protecting them from a host of, of other health problems. And, and by the way, this is not your mother's McDonald's. You know, That's this right. is what the, the, the food contaminants that we're talking about have all increased in toxicity and quantity and ubiquitous presence. And so it's time to take another look at that drive through and its conveniences, because in the end, it's not convenient at all to give yourself death. Cancer. No, it's not. And, and I think I think I read that McDonald's used to fry their French fries in beef tallow. You know, way back yeah, in the day. Probably, that was probably better than what they're using now. Oh, yeah, 100%. But, it would have been so much better. But yeah. But also, it, how many of these foods are causing problems like autism, anxiety, yeah. or depression in children? It yeah. is becoming increasingly documented. But of course, they don't spend very much research and develop money at more than finding out about the chemicals uh, that impact our health and particularly their interaction with one another. This is a, a soup of chemicals out there. Yes. And we need to start seeing what is unseen, which is what is in our food and in our bodies. And it is, and, and, it, and then it comes back to haunt us when we grow things called cancers and we go, gee, how did that happen? Well, let's stop doing it. But anyway, I'm very grateful and would look forward to being back with you again and to grow your platform and increase our numbers. This is a revolution, Sabrina. It is. It is a revolution. And I, that's one of my things is I want to start a food revolution. So how do people find you? How do they get your book? And then I know you had Joel. Um, it, it's called, what, what was it called? Food Fest? You had him. Are you doing anything like that in, in 2024? I believe we are planning to have him back again. And if it goes well, we will continue to upscale it each year is the plan. It was a two-day event. Um, and I don't want, as far as how people find me, I don't want to be found. That's why I hide in the woods. That's the best place to be. Um, but uh, you can find me, uh, people can write to me directly if they want it. My email, it's Farmer John Clark, K-L-A-R-J-O-H-N, Clark, at gmail.com. Uh, my website is smallfarmrepublic.com, which has some more biographical info. Stack, which is called Small Farm Republic. And the book is available on Amazon and elsewhere, including at my publisher, Chelsea Green Publishing. Um, at small, It's called Small Farm Republic. Easy to find. And I'm very, awesome. very grateful for any support. But my book isn't there for me to make a profit. My book is there for people to read it and profit from what it contains. Because like with cows, once you know, you don't go back. You know, when yes. people are saying two plus two is five and you learn that it's four, you never go back to five again. It's about time we laugh about these attacks on cows, but they keep going on. It's about time we said, hey, shut up. 
cows are the solution, not the problem. What are your real motives? Sorry, I'm ranting again. Thank you for letting me close with a rant, Sabrina. <laughs> That's okay. I, I think it's all important stuff. And I could literally talk about this for hours. And I do think that I would love, we can, um, you know, kind of pick, or maybe the audience can pick something specific and we can talk about that. And because there's so many layers to, you know, what we've talked about and, and it does, it gives people power and, and, you know, thank you for leading the charge to, for, for a food revolution. Well, thank you because I'm a tree falling in the woods silently. If I don't have people like you to amplify and spread the voice, there are a lot of people who do not want us to have this conversation. Well, and they shadow ban us and everything else. But we are having the conversation, as you say, people are waking up. They're waking up about the shots. They're waking up about their food supply. And they're waking up about the monetary system. And all three of those are connected. They absolutely are. All right. Well, I will definitely be having you back. Thank you so much for talking about this and educating us all on these really important things. I'm honored. Rock and roll. <laughs>